0: Welcome to Hub & Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub & Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Chris Lenton. It's Tuesday, October 26th. Today, our guest is Nikos Safos. Nikos is the James R. Schlesinger Chair in Energy and Geopolitics with the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies and an expert on all things natural gas. Nikos, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Okay, so... Times are crazy in global natural gas markets right now, with prices all over the world much higher than where they were at this time last year. And in the case of Europe in particular, there's a lot of worry about this winter from an energy perspective. I think we all sort of understand how we got here, or or, or sort of, you know, a very cold winter in Asia last year, strong economic recovery from covid uh, supply issues, from a lack of investment in production, and also a moving away from, from fossil fuel investment, along with maintenance and LNG shut-ins. Some just say this is just the craziness of of, of COVID sort of shutting down the world and the, and the world now recuperating from that or trying to. And so now we head into this very precarious winter in the Northern Hemisphere. Give me your perspective on what you think will happen, Nikos, this winter. I mean, are, are prices going to remain sky high? I think you can say that the market is tight. It, it's not clear to me that the market is
2: so tight to really justify these prices. I mean, the prices that we're seeing right now are are unprecedented and in my view unjustified. So the question really is what does the correction look like and when does it when does it come? It's easy for me to paint a picture where a little bit of this is panic buying, and as we go through the winter, we spend maybe one month or one and a half months, and then we redo the math and realize that. Hey, we're actually going to make it through the winter, and at that point, sort of prices are correct, and it's an it's a really very abrupt correction. I would say that this is sort of my base assumption going into the winter. You know, it's quite possible that we have a very cold winter, and that assumption or that outlook doesn't doesn't hold. But but it's it's very hard for me to see a justification for these kind of price levels. And, and again, remembering that the way I read the data. Yes, European gas storage is not incredibly high in terms of the percentage of how full it is. But if you look at it in, in volume terms, you know, it's not terrible. I mean, there's a lot of gas in storage. It's just not maybe as high as it was last year or the year before. So so I do think there is a little bit more of, of a panic driving the price rather than actual fundamentals.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, staying in Europe, do you see energy policies changing as a result of the, of the supply crunch?
2: It's hard to say exactly what will come out of this. I think one of the things that's clear is countries are interpreting this crisis to reinforce their priors. So if you had a predisposition for a rapid transition, you're looking at this crisis and are saying, we need a rapid transition because this is what you get if you don't move away from fossil fuels. If you were predisposed against the transition or you wanted to be cautious vis-a-vis the transition... This is what you're also saying. You say, look at this crisis. This is what happens when you move too fast. So it's not obvious to me that a crisis pushes you clearly in one way or another. And the balance in Europe, I think, is much more inclined to support a rapid transition, that this is how it's going to be interpreted. I do think that there are some structural questions that we're going to see revisited. You already are seeing a conversation around the way we set prices and the target model and sector coupling and whether or not marginal pricing is is the right way of pricing these commodities. So I think there is a desire to revisit some of the fundamentals but you know that takes time and it's there's no real consensus on where to go only that our current model has has failed us. I can also see some revisiting of policy around the role of gas You know, one of the things that is coming out of Russia very loudly is, you know, how do you want us to invest in new supply if you won't tell us what the demand is? You know, I think Russia is saying a lot of stuff during this crisis. I think this is one of the things that it's saying that makes a lot of sense to me. Mm -hmm. So I I don't know that you'll get a lot more coherence out of Europe on on gas demand going forward. But that dilemma of you want to decarbonize, but at the same time, you want to ensure secure supplies for the transition. You know, that's a real paradox. It's a real contradiction in policy. I'm not sure that Europe has an answer to it yet, but I do expect policymakers to come back to it and look for, for new solutions. And then, you know, finally, I think there's going to be a conversation about storage. This, to me, is very clearly a challenge of seasonal balancing, where the structure that we have today, and especially the reliance on LNG for Europe, is just not enough to meet the seasonal balancing needs of Europe unless you have ample LNG in the summer to refill all the storage. And so that is something I expect policymakers will come back to really rethink, like, do we have enough structures in place to meet the huge seasonal swing that we see in the northern hemisphere between summer and winter that is mostly articulated today in the natural gas market?
1: Mm. Well, I'd like to revisit the theme of storage uh, a little bit later, in, in particular in the case of Mexico. But So let's, let's shift over a little bit to, to North America Uh, You know, I'd like to to talk about what all of this means for U.S. natural gas prices. U.S. gas prices are, are, you know, at their highest level in years, uh, still a lot lower than Europe and Asia, but around, you know, five or six dollars per MMBTU, which is about double where they were last year. And one of the contributors is, you know, LNG exports. LNG export capacity is is set to be around 13 BCF a a day next year. And then you have a few projects that are likely to get to FID. Uh, And you also have U.S. producers reluctant to ramp up production are these u.s prices
2: here to stay look i think that interplay between prices and lng is is something relatively new so we'll see how it plays out we uh in the first five years of exporting lng we never really had a moment where you could say high gas prices were primarily driven by lng i think that's an interesting moment and it's also an interesting moment of course politically but the ultimate question really is Exactly your point on on U.S. gas supply and frankly, U.S. oil supply as well, because those two things are linked. You know, the main reason why gas prices are high is because the U.S. production system isn't really responding Mm -hmm. to these high prices and isn't really responding to this big pool from, from LNG. And I think the message that you're hearing from pretty much every company is we're not drilling because our investors don't want us to drill because our investors are asking for returns and and return on investment and not just growth. So, you know, one of the things that I'm thinking a lot about is, you know, over the last 10 years on the oil side, 80% of the incremental growth in production came from the United States from 2010 to 2019. Mm -hmm. On gas, it was more closer to 45%, but still the U.S. production system and the growth in U.S. production was such a driver for global gas prices, the reduction of global gas prices. So, if that system is broken, if that sort of high production leads to high investment, or sorry, high prices leads to high investment leads to high production. If that system is broken, and right now, for the short term, it seems that it is. You know, that forces us to really rethink what the commodity outlook is going to look for the 2000s and, and and 20s here, and I think it spells higher higher gas prices i think that r- the real message coming out of the us investor community is that these oil and gas prices were unsustainably low in the 2010s we didn't make money and so we have to assume that the equilibrium price is going to be higher than that going forward and what that means for the role of course of the us as a global supplier you know we can talk about that but but it's very clear to me at least that we, we can't really go back to where we were the last decade because those prices were
1: not sustainable. Uh, that's interesting because, you know, the shale boom also fueled the building of pipelines into Mexico. And sort of one of my principal jobs is, is to help with the transparency around the creation of a, of a natural gas market in Mexico. In a recent a, a post on social media, you were digging through the BP statistical review of world energy. And you said that Mexico is a really big gas consumer. In 2020, it consumed more gas than in India, Korea, Turkey, and the United Kingdom. It's as big a market as Germany now, and it's the sixth largest importer in the world, just behind Italy. You said, we don't talk about Mexico as a gas market often enough. But what did you mean by that? Does, does, are you saying that Mexico impacts global gas di- dynamics?
2: You know, it's interesting because actually, oddly enough, what has happened to Mexico, if I can begin with this, with the last part of your question... Actually, we've seen Mexico retreat from global global gas markets because it's become much more dependent on the United States, right? So, so what happened actually in, in the U.S., which is as production grew, imports of LNG declined, we're seeing a little bit of that happen in Mexico as well, where the growth in pipeline imports from the U.S., uh, it didn't produce at first, but now it has produced a decline in LNG imports. So you're actually, oddly enough, seeing Mexico become more disconnected from the global market because it's become much more embedded into the North American gas system, right? So I think that's an interesting interplay of of what role Mexico plays globally uh, through LNG. But the broader point of that post was, I mean, the consumption number is huge, right? I mean, you know, I, I don't know how many, you know, if you have a job that focuses on Mexico, maybe that's not a good example, but, you know, if you have a job that is global like mine, You know, I have like 25 people that will mention India to me and Southeast Asia, and no one will ever say Mexico in terms of like where gas consumption is coming from and and countries that you have to engage with and think about. So to me, it's an underappreciated story that if you haven't been paying close attention to data, you would have missed it. It's also, by the way, a real story of oil gas switching. And so a success story in terms of both emissions as well as local air pollution. You know, I think there are some interesting questions about how sustainable this is, particularly because so much is driven by oil to gas switching. And at some point you play out that, that market and you need to find new areas to grow. But it's, it's staggering just how big of a market this is and, and how little focus it gets on the international scene as a source of, of demand uh, in a world where everyone is obsessed with, you know, Vietnam and Philippines and Pakistan and Bangladesh and all these other places. You know, that's what gets all the all the attention or, or India. You know, it's much rarer to hear about Mexico as a major source of gas, the matter of the world in a global conversation. And that's a pity because the data shows that they should be up there.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's a massive market. It's also a very vulnerable market. Last winter in Texas, there was this freak storm that prevented natural gas from getting into Mexico. In Texas, there was a freak storm and that caused widespread blackouts in Mexico what, you know, what does a country like Me- Mexico need to do to ensure against something like this? You know, Mexico's like the UK and basically has no storage. You know, is storage the solution here?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think one of the lessons that you really are learning looking at the European experience, right? And, and I've written about this when it comes to the UK, right? That the UK, you know, they, they have domestic production and then they have imports, but the imports are of very different, type and character. You know, the imports from Norway are are super predictable. They have a seasonal swing to them. You can depend on them. You know, the the volumes from the continent are actually much more volatile because they depend on the price relationship with the Netherlands and with Belgium. And so sometimes the UK is an importer, sometimes it's an exporter. And then LNG is more of a free-for-all. Sometimes it comes, sometimes it doesn't come. So I think, you know, one of the big lessons for me that I would take to a place like Mexico, is, you know, really trying to think through your supply, where it's coming from, like the geography of that supply, the vulnerabilities to it. And in particular, I think in the last, you know, 10 years or so, we got so obsessed with optionality, right? We always think of like, oh, build a regasification terminal, you have the option, you know, no matter where you are, if you're in Eastern Europe. If you're in Asia, just build a regasification terminal because it gives you the option. Mm. Well, one of the things we've learned is that the option is no, no good if you can't get the LNG, mm. right? And so I think part of the challenge is we have to really, I think, dig deeper into how we understand the vulnerabilities in the gas supply chain, what we treat of as, as firm and secure, and really, I think it calls for granularity, right, and really understanding Okay, where am I vulnerable and how do I build up that vulnerability? And in doing so, you really can't make a lot of assumptions around, oh, as long as I have LNG, I can always get it, because you can't. And and that's I think one of the lessons, by the way, that we also learned last year in Asia, where you know, Japan, Korea, China were willing to pay, but you didn't have the ships, you had the bottlenecks in the Panama Canal. Like, you know, that system just wasn't there to deliver it to them so i can definitely also say that in in europe you've had countries that have been exposed to high gas prices despite having storage but it's definitely better to have storage than not right but it, that takes time and it takes a, a a focused policy environment to make that storage be economically viable right so i i think that you know, in some ways, I feel like Mexico has sort of outsourced its supply to the U.S., Yeah, right? That like, oh, all the gas will come from there and it's okay. We don't have to worry about it. All we need to do is plug into that system. And that's just not good enough, as, as you pointed out. When you have a crisis in the U.S., that spreads very quickly to you. So you need to think in a more nuanced way about how to protect your security supply.
1: Yeah. Well, and speaking of the security supply and also the, you know, the, the geopolitical issue that you brought up beforehand, should Mexico expect in the future that the US might seek to shield its consumers from the, the volatility of the global gas market I mean could we get to a stage where states or go, or the government in the US says you know we're going to prevent prevent exports to to you know keep pricing in check kind of thing yeah we're
2: pushing up against some of the limits on that we'll see how it how it plays out my my general sense is that there's a huge bias against that that I don't think that There's a great willingness in Washington right now to do something dramatic, like cut off the supply. I think part of the challenge that isn't, it's something that we're just appreciating now is, you know, the U.S. has become too big of a player to do that right now, right? I mean, if you today were to say, oh, let's curtail exports from the United States, there would be a lot of countries around the world that would see that as a massive undermining of their own energy security including a lot of our allies Mm -hmm. right so i think part of the guarantee i think against some abrupt action is the recognition that if you do this you're really going to hurt a lot of countries including our allies so so i think it puts gas in a more difficult political position where you're today you know you have very expensive gas a lot of it driven by exports I don't think the appetite is there for something heavy handed, but it is definitely something that I expect people will start thinking about and maybe trying to figure out how do you do that in a more measured way. If you look on the LNG side, for instance, you know, there's a lot of uh, staggered authorizations. You don't just get like one big authorization. You got some authorization for some trains and then some extra capacity along the way. So I could see conversations around how do we temper, how do we pull back some of these like you know, the top wedge of the of the export system, maybe think about tempering that. But my general suggestion that I speak to policymakers a lot, including about this, is you know, don't do something rash, don't do something that you're gonna regret, and definitely don't do something that's gonna reverberate negatively in global markets. But there's definitely a conversation around this. There's definitely thinking about this and what might be possible. My last comment on this, you know, I think there's a real conversation to have around you know how do you reconcile the country's climate ambition with its position as the largest hydrocarbon producer in the world for the united states mm-hmm. and that's a good conversation to have but you can't tackle that conversation by just saying let's cut off exports or we just need to prioritize domestic consumers without regard for the global ramifications of that of that policy so i expected something that we're going to was going to see a little bit more discussion around. I don't think it's quite ripe for action yet. Mm. But absolutely, if I were Mexico, I would be thinking about not a worst-case scenario, but at least I would be thinking about more broadly, have I become dependent on the U.S. too much? And that's, I think, not a bad question to ask
1: if you're sitting in Mexico. Yeah. I think the answer there is probably overwhelmingly yes. Um, (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Uh, Nico's final question: COP 26 is coming up next week. H- how does the energy crunch impact these talks?
2: You know, in some ways, it's a it's a reminder of the work that we need to do, and I think it's a reminder of just how much policymakers are trying to balance the old system and the new, and the and the tightrope that this entails. Having said that, I I, I also don't think that this is a huge it's not really going to you know, spoil the party, I don't think. I think there's some bigger fights that we have going into COP, and this is sort of at the edge of those fights. My main expectation is what I said earlier, which is that you know, countries look at these crises and they reinforce their priors, right? So from the Europeans, what you're going to hear is, this is the kind of crisis that we're trying to get out of, so let's move faster. By the way, I don't think that this is true factually, but... That's what you're going to hear from the Europeans. And, you know, even I think what you're hearing out of China, which is, yes, we need to secure the supply, but not at the expense of the transition. I think that's a a little bit of what you're going to hear. But I don't expect this to be a major point of contention, primarily because we have much bigger points of contention that people can actually fight about. This is something that we're all kind of facing together. And it's just a, a reminder and a backdrop of the reality that we inhabit. There's much less to sort of debate over it right now, uh, going into a
0: big international conference.
1: Okay, fantastic. Let's let's leave it there, Nikos. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. If your business requires daily, weekly, or bidweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate, and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.